Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 347, recorded August 8th, 2021. And today we are doing Star Trek Year 5, issues 19 and 20. That came out at the beginning of 2021. Hmm. January and February. Or at least January. Yeah. I'm sure the one was February. Yeah, so yeah, we keep on going and I kind of like doing two issues. Uh, you know, so we're not, don't feel rushed and stuff to get ready. And you can take more time with the issues. And there's plenty, plenty of stuff going on with these two issues. Right. So. Yeah, we probably should stagger it. So at least we get the, cause these all seem to be two parters. So it kind of seems weird that we're always finishing off last <laughs> week's story and then uh, starting a new one. So, mm-hmm. yep. But uh, so that because that's definitely what we do today. We we yes. find out what happens with Isis and Gary on nineteen and then twenty, brand new story. Right, or at least with Isis. Right. Yeah, I guess uh, it's, it's, it's we odd really... we didn't. It's I mean Gary didn't show up to the best of our knowledge at all, which is odd. That's one of my notes. It's like why yeah. why didn't Gary show up in any of this? And that one dude still looks like Gary to me. The which one? The Which one guy that there? remember last oh, week right. saying that that one guy looked like uh yeah the, the Centaurian, right? Uh, and, and he's in it in this one too. And, yeah, he's there. And when he starts talking, I'm like, all right, they're gonna reveal that he's Gary. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> right. The guy McCoy ends up saving. Yeah. So, anyways, well, you want to just jump into it and let's let's see how it all shakes out. Yeah, let's do it. A lot of interesting things happen in this issue. And um, it's weird because I was not expecting the ending that we got. Okay, so published date, January 2021. Uh, I couldn't find a, um, a an issue title, which is not unusual. Writer is Jim McCann. Art by Angel Hernandez. Colorist, Fran Gamboa. Letterer Neil Yataki, showrunners Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, and the editor is Chase Marotz. So, as usual, we have two covers with the Year 5 stuff. Uh, the first cover is uh, the main cover, cover A, uh, features Isis in human form, who just finished mopping the floor with three red shirts, or at least three red shirts, maybe more. Sulu and Chekhov come upon the saw like scene. Phasers in hand, looking at each other, and preparing to rumble. The cover is by Stephen Thompson. The retailer incentive cover is one of those travel poster kind of sort of things. This one is for Proxima Centauri. The poster extols the virtues of the vacation location, um, but subsequent, it, it looks like there's subsequent notices that have been pasted over the the poster that um, that calls attention and states that the planet is now under Federation quarantine. 
Da-da-da. Kirk and Spock in spacesuits look on as Dr. McCoy, in an isolation chamber, pleads to be released from containment. He must be out working with his uh, equipment and patients, finding a cure. Not stuck here, damn it. Kirk insists that he must stay in isolation since his spacesuit ripped, which likely exposed him to the pathogen. Kirk finally relents to McCoy's constant whining and asks Nurse Chapel to report to sickbay. Meanwhile, at another part of the ship, Sulu, Chekhov, and a four-man strong red-shirt security detail are running down a hallway when Isis confronts them. Chekhov accuses her of releasing the pathogen on Proxima Centauri and attempts to place her under arrest. She shapeshifts into a Tholian, a black Tholian, uh, and takes down the four red shirts. Sulu is able to get in close and damage Isis's right arm, which causes her to shift back into her human form. Meanwhile in sickbay, McCoy is out and about, tending to his patients in a spacesuit. Kirk speaks to Chapel, who tells him McCoy is not showing symptoms. Kirk makes the observation that McCoy has been mulling over for a while. This disease likely is not targeted at humans, just Centaurans. Kirk receives a call from Chekhov, who is reporting on Isis likely being the one who unleashed the infection. She is on the Enterprise and in custody uh, by, by them, with more backup on the way. Kirk leaves Isis to Chekhov and Sulu, while he turns his attention to McCoy and the infection. Meanwhile, before more reinforcements arrive, Isis rises and shifts back into her Tholian form. All the better to attack you, my pretties. Two more red shirts are impaled. Due to the success of Sulu's earlier attack, he concludes Tholian Isis's only weakness is in her joints. They need to attack her there, so he and Sulu concentrate their phaser fire on her joints. She turns and rises up to her full height, calling them mice and saying, It's time to play. Meanwhile, in sickbay, McCoy loses another Centauran patient. Kirk suggests he could use some of the medical tech Admiral Corax's research created. McCoy verbally spits on the idea, saying Corax was a monster, and anything he came up with is monstrous. McCoy says Starfleet can do better. Kirk tells him to reconsider for his and Joanna's sake. McCoy takes off his helmet, unexpectedly, and says he thinks him being fully exposed should not hurt him at all. I guess he'll find out. Kirk is shocked at the risk the good doctor is taking. Elsewhere on the surface, Spock, Calix, and two more people are investigating the site of the explosion that they think is ground zero of the infection. They find an intact device inside of the crater which leads Spock to conclude it could be a secondary device that will finish the job if the primary device does not. Calix says she wants it deactivated or removed from her planet. Spock calls up to the Enterprise and asks Scotty to transport the device off the surface uh, and materialize it in space. Meanwhile, Isis has dispatched all the red shirts in a particularly gruesome way. 
It's just down to Sulu and Chekhov now. Chekhov has an idea and gives Sulu a long piece of metal, roughly in the shape of a big sword. While Chekhov draws her attention with phaser fire, Sulu comes at her from a different angle and slides under her, slicing her up at the joint between her thigh and the trunk of her Tholian body. Sulu shoots his phaser into the opening made by Sulu. Isis is mortally wounded. She croaks, acceptable losses, as the floor rushes up to meet her. Chekhov bellows. She can't die. They need to know why she targeted Proxima Centauri. Meanwhile, McCoy is able to isolate antibodies in his blood that are unique to humans and mix it up with his Centauran patient's blood. It appears to work, and eventually the Centauran is able to sit up in his bed and speak. Later, they are on the planet with McCoy hooked up to a bunch of tubes running through a box that's mounted on his chest. And of course, this box has the required uh, red-white lights on the front of it. McCoy's own blood enters the box, and then from the box, it's distributed through tubes where it feeds into these big, huge fans that are distributing McCoy's blood out into the uh, Centauran population in a really icky, wet way. Anyone in a white outfit will have a date with a dry cleaner. Later on the Enterprise Bridge, McCoy is standing up, talking to Kirk with a big bandage wrap over his uniform, on the outside of his uniform. So he had a lot of holes in his chest where all that blood was ex- extracted. Uh, anyway, I, f- I think he should be in sickbay uh, drinking orange juice, but whatever. Chekhov enters the bridge and relieves Mr. Rx while taking his navigator station back. Spock briefs Kirk on the device his party found on the surface. Since they beamed it into space and reintegrated it, the device is intact but off the planet where it can do no harm. However, its exact purpose is still a mystery. The end. So did you have any trouble following the action and stuff in this issue? I really did. Oh, Sulu and Chekhov and and stuff? That that thing? Yeah, like, what what the hell's going on? (laughs) Well, I think... Yeah, I I did. Go ahead. ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say, like, mainly, like, that that first fight with uh, Sulu and and, uh, Isis... Mm Mm-hmm. Looks like he's gonna do like a karate thing, and yeah. then it looks like he's got he got elbowed in the face, but then it shows Isis like hurt and back in her human form. So uh-huh. she was slowly. It looks like she elbowed Sulu in the face, and then it shows her, and she's like holding her arm like she got hurt. Yeah, like, like, is his jaw that strong? Nah, <laughs> I, I couldn't follow what was going on. Yeah, well, there are. I completely agree with you. But all, all I know is, and this is from dialogue afterward, and of course her like down on her knees or something, cradling her arm, is somehow Sulu was able to affect her joint. Uh, so exactly how he did it, maybe you're right, maybe with his jaw, although I didn't, I didn't realize that. Uh, I don't know how it happened, but it happened, so I just had to go with it. Right. It, it's like the very beginning. Okay, so in the previous episode, 
we saw it was basically down to um, ISIS. ISIS is there, and then Chekhov and Sulu are there, and they are unarmed, and they are alone. So they're ready to, you know, it's, it's going to be mano mano e cat. And then at the beginning of this issue, because, you know, you think they're going to be all on their own, they're running down a hall in one panel, and then the next panel, there's four red shirts behind them, and, and Sulu and Chekhov have phasers in their hands. So... I can only assume that Chekhov and Sulu ran <laughs> from ISIS rather than face her unarmed and right. alone. They, they ran up to those four guys, and then once they got to those four guys, they sent the four they... guys first <laughs> to get well, to get completely butchered. <laughs> yeah, they, they must have. They must have had extra phasers, and they handed them to Sulu and Chekhov. Uh, or right. else they gave up their phaser, which I would not give up my phaser if I was a redshirt, ever. But, uh, you know, all of a sudden, Chekhov and Sulu have phasers in their hands. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's, it's Chekhov and Sulu is in the front, in the lead. Um, you know, the closest ones to, I- to ISIS. But then she, when she turns into the Tholian, it's all the redshirts getting killed. So what right. happened? Well, I mean, they are redshirts. They are supposed to be the ones that get... You know, Agreed. Through the chest. Agreed, and they are Im- impaled quite a bit here. Right. Um, I just don't know how Sulu and Chekhov always end up in the back of the back of the pack. Right. And then I don't know where uh, Chekhov got that sword to give the Sulu, <laughs> and what exactly Sulu did. Just, I guess, hit her, hit her joint or something, so that then Chekhov could shoot into the wound and. Take her out. That's what I got out of it. That's what I got out of it too. But yeah. it is really not clear. I, I don't know if it was just the pacing of the action was just not giving me quite enough that uh, so I could clearly follow what was going on. Mm-hmm. Well, they made they made it. Well, they definitely made it seem like that like that jagged piece of metal came from the Enterprise uh, floor. I mean, it's like it's sticking out from the floor. Oh, is that what that that is right there? Okay. What well, seems to be? I mean, it looks. I mean, it almost looks a little like, uh, like what, forty two or uh, Fortress of Solitude? <laughs> yeah, it does kind of. You know, so it has this like crystally kind of looking things, but they say is metal. Anyway, handy thing that's in the shape of a sword, more or less. Yeah. So Chekhov just breaks off a chunk and gives it to him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So here's the plan. You you take the sword. This oh yeah yeah. Just 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 believe this punk of metal is a sword. So you go underneath him and try to slice him. Give me an opening and I'll fire. So yeah, you do that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm sorry if if a phaser doesn't hurt her. I don't see how a piece of metal is going to do any more damage. Yeah, and I don't see how a phaser would not damage it. I mean. If you if you switch the phaser into disintegration mode, won't it disintegrate things? Disintegrate matter? Right. So what kind of matter is <laughs> is a Tholian made of that a phaser cannot disintegrate it? I I just don't get it. Right. Yeah, and I mean, but if she's Tholian, then she should be breaking apart, right? Because it's so cold. So oh, she doesn't mm-hmm. she doesn't have the characteristics of a, a normal Tholian, right? 
It's she so, is a, she is able to handle the, uh, the the cold temperatures just fine. Right. Yeah. Good point. So yeah, she's just some sort of super Tholian monster that can kick butt. Super Tholian. But can't take a uh, can't take a, a a wee little a wee little stick with a <laughs> um, piece of metal. A wee little jagged stick. But yeah, it kills her. I mean, I was really surprised when she died. Yeah, well, well, the phaser killed her. Right, right. Well, once it got shot into the into the opening, the sword wound. Yeah, which is what I'm assuming happened. But again, it's not 100 percent clear. No. Okay, so Isis, Isis is dead. So Isis has been the manipulator of Gary. Uh, as we found out in 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 last week's issues. Mm-hmm. So. She's a big baddie. I mean, she's a big baddie. And she's dead now. And she was the one that was manipulating Gary's brain. So, number one, where's Gary? He's nowhere to be seen the past two issues. Uh, as long as he's not that, that Centauran guy. Mm-hmm. Which um, I don't think he is. No. Nah. Um, and she's dead. So, the, the one that was manipulating Gary. Uh, Gary's... Key, um, Handler, basically. Because she seems to know everything, right? And right. And tells Gary about things. And she's gone now. So is he going to get a new handler? Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. It will I, be interesting. It will. I completely agree. It will be interesting. Uh, and then, uh, did you like the whole Scotty not wanting to beam that thing out into space? And acting like it was a big deal seemed <laughs> seemed a little weird, right? Yeah. What, what? Why is that a big deal, Scotty? I mean, just do it. You did it before, I guess. That's what Spock said. So, right. Just do it. Well, and by the I... way, why oh, reintegrate it? I mean, you know, you know, it's it's or you think you theorize it's some kind of dangerous device. So don't reintegrate it. Just beam it out into space and don't reintegrate it. Leave it. Leave the the atoms floating in space. Floating in space. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I think you have to put it somewhere. But I know that like in the expanded media from when I was a kid, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they made a big deal on when I was reading a Star Trek: The Next Generation novel that they could do site to site transports. Mm-hmm. At that time, and that it wasn't something that they could do. On the uh, in the original series time. So in the original series, you had to beam from the to a a, a transporter pad mm-hmm, somewhere, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Right. So at least at least one end of your transportation had to be the pad itself, right? Um, and so I mean, I, but I think they've gotten away from that since then, because uh, you see, you know, in like Discovery and stuff, I think you see people transporting, you know, from the bridge down to the planet, you know, without ever going to the transporter room. I don't know if you ever do, but I think there was examples of you know site to site transports. I, th- I think there were. Uh, I can't think of a specific instance, but I think you're right. But yeah, I think they've moved away from that as being a uh, a thing that you can't do. But but here, I'm like, well, I, I guess if they're going to go back to that old way, where you know maybe that's what Scotty's talking about, you know, beaming something that could be a bomb, mm-hmm. and then somehow manipulating it so that he doesn't have to bring it on the ship and then out to space. Right. But I wasn't clear. Yeah. 
Well, it's revisionists all over the place. I mean, look at all the things you can do in Discovery, including instantaneous space travel, which you well, couldn't do later. I know, that one. I know. <laughs> but they seem to be able to do almost everything that Next Gen can do. Right. I don't know. Right. Well, even Next Gen did it. I mean, they had transport beaming for like two episodes, and then, like, we're never going to bring this back up again. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Next Gen had transport beaming? Okay. Yeah, when they Wh- followed, uh, when they followed <clears throat> Lore and Hugh into, it was that, uh, that, that two-parter, uh, Borg one with, where oh, right. Lore was taking over the Borg. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they had transport beaming in that one because they were like, oh, we're able to mimic what the Borg cubes do. And then I don't ever remember them explaining why they can't do it in the next episode. But now they can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sure as hell, Voyager can't do it. Right. Well, that's a long tradition in, in Star Trek. It's not just the J.J. Abrams. No. Um, where there's an episode where something should have changed everything, but it never did. Like right. robots. I mean, how many, you mentioned it, there were multiple episodes where robots were introduced. So it's right. like, well... Here's humanoid robots. Every bit as good as data will be, you know, 180 years from now or whatever. Uh, why don't you use them? <laughs> or, you know, or, or like you just mentioned about transwarp. So w- was that transwarp engine or transwarp teleportation beaming? Uh, it was transwarp engine. Engines. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. But that's a good point. In Star Trek Three, they made a big deal that uh, the Excelsior was transwarp capable uh, in Star Trek 3 and then never bring it up again. Yeah. Well, it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work, supposedly. So they had to go back to more traditional engines. Right. Excelsior... Hey, did they call it transwarp? Did yeah, they call they it transwarp? Trans- okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that word has been floating around for exactly. a long time. <laughs> Everybody just wants to repurpose it for something else. Exactly. If we need something to move fast, that's transwarp. There you go. Sounds perfect. <laughs> uh, all right. So, yeah, I didn't like the beaming thing. I didn't really know what was going on. And it's never resolved. It's just they're going to leave the planet and be like, I wonder what that thing ever was. We don't know. We'll never know. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So how'd you like the McCoy blood spray? Oh, man, it was so awesome. (laughs) You do not want to be outside with your mouth open on that day. Unless you're a vampire. Yeah. So, obviously, they're, like, mixing some of McCoy's blood in with other blood. Because in the panel, you can see, like, 15 jillion tubes coming off of this, uh, this box. That's on, on McCoy's chest. Feeding oh, right. into these huge uh, turbines. They almost look like huge jet engines. That's shooting all this red moisture. Uh, that, Onto that, these floating cities. Uh, exactly. Floating platforms where apparently the Centauran cities are. Which is another subject all in itself. Because at the beginning, when we in the previous issue, when we were first introduced to that place... Uh, Proxima Centaur, Centauri, right. or I was mainly focusing at the beginning of this issue. But when you look at that, 
it's like I didn't know they were in the air. <laughs> no, I, didn't I thought they either. were on dirt side or something. I mean, it looked like they were they were standing on uh, rocky uh, brown uh, earth with like no vegetation. But yeah. uh, but they're actually on these floating platforms, and there's multiple of them that have skyscrapers on top. And you can, if you look in the background, you can see them. But it took me a couple passes, and really at the end is when I really noticed it when they did that spray thing. Right. Uh, but until then, I didn't notice it, and it's like oh. Well, maybe that explains why the Enterprise was so low in orbit in that first issue. When Isis looked up, I mean, it looked like the Enterprise was just right over her head, huge and everything. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, I thought that was weird. I thought, well, that's pretty pretty low orbit. But I guess if you're already, you know, a thousand thousand feet over the the surface already, still looks pretty close. Yeah, and I wonder why they made it that way. I mean, is it is it supposedly in canon that Proxima Centauri is like that? I mean, if that was one of the first human settlements, they didn't have floating city tech back then, <laughs> right? Yeah, it seems like a lot of work to to keep these cities afloat. Right. Yeah, they, I mean, they it, got they got these thing they got these round things on the sides, almost looking like making them look like shield helicarriers. Or yeah, something. they look like helicarriers. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it seems like a lot of work. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it only takes like one of those engines to go down, and you lose a whole city. Yeah. Yikes! Like we saw in the Avengers, <laughs> when Hawkeye shoots an arrow into it. That's all it takes is an arrow. One arrow. One arrow. Or one pigeon that gets stuck up in the turbine. Exactly. It just seems very dicey. But yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I was not blown away with McCoy's cure. It just seems like that happens a lot in Star Trek where they're just like, oh, well, we just need to inject water into them. Oh, we just need to inject our own blood into them. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. like, done this before. That it's this big, like, everybody's going to die situation. And then you find out it's like the simplest little thing that you could do. Right. Is the cure. Yeah. And, and whatever the cure is, usually it's something you need to inject people with. So you go ahead and start injecting people. You don't, <laughs> you don't <laughs> you, go through this country. You don't aerosol your blood. Exactly. Yeah, that seems, it seems pretty weird. But well, but he that... was like breathing into that one guy's mouth to, to, to revive him. Just like, not giving him mouth to mouth because their lips weren't touching, but literally opening his mouth and then just like blowing. Breathing in. <laughs> I was like, what's he doing? This is weird. Well, I will say one thing. Uh, if a doctor is going to heal you, this is about the most personal way of healing I could think of. Right. Here's my blood. I'm giving my own blood to save you. It's like, oh boy. Yeah. So. It's definitely going above and beyond. Indeed. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's all I have to say. I don't think I have anything else to say about this one. So did Rx get a demotion there at the last page? Oh. Well, okay, so I guess they closed the arc of where Chekhov and Sulu got pissed at each other. Actually, it was Sulu that got pissed off at at Chekhov because of the fish lady dying. Um, right, and so now they're resolving it's, that, it's and now fish person, kid. Oh, right, yeah, right. Not, 
non-gender. Non-gender, you're right about that. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting they close that loop, but I thought Sulu would just be going right into security. You mean Chekhov? Yeah. All right, I'm sorry, Chekhov. I thought Chekhov would just be going right into his security position. Since he's obviously really good at it. Uh, I I thought that was awesome. I mean, okay, so there might be some things a little wrong about how ISIS died, but still, I mean, it it shows that it was Chekhov, it was Chekhov's idea, and he got it done. And I do want to say it's very cool how you've got ISIS on the ship, and Kirk has enough faith in Chekhov and Sulu together that he's willing to leave it to them. Right. I thought that was pretty cool. Delegation. Yeah, something we would have never seen the chat actually do. No, no. <laughs> I got to go back, go down there and deal with ISIS myself. Yeah, he would have like, remember that transporter accident? I need you to beam two of me up there. One down here and one up Because <laughs> I just have to be in both places at once. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there you go. All right, I, I don't have anything else. Like I said, I, I like this issue. I'm really surprised ISIS died. Yeah. I had a hard time following a lot of what, uh, the action stuff because mm-hmm. it was just not clear as to what yeah. exactly was happening. And the uh, the resolution just seemed like they'd done that before where it's just, you know, the simplest little thing. Um, you know, just, just all I have to do is breathe on them. All I have to do is inject them <laughs> with water. It just seemed like, like you've done this before. Well, oh, well in both in both but, original series and next generation, it's just like we've seen that in in these stories before. Yeah, but but they're taking it up a notch with this whole uh, with the aerosol blood thing. With yeah, the aerosol that, blood, that, thing. That, that's definitely going. <laughs> that's one step beyond. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have to do that? No, they probably didn't have to do that. But and it really doesn't make much sense if you think about it. But eh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Anybody that was in in the building. Or wearing those masks, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't tell everybody to take the masks off that they were wearing in the first issue. Yeah. Or maybe they did, and we just didn't see it. I guess so. And, uh, yeah. Yep. All right, you ready? Let's go to the next one. Issue 20? Let's, let, let's, let's, see it. let's hear what the uh, new story arc is going to be. Right. So I'm, I'm, sure, a... I'm sure they won't reuse any old ideas. <laughs> yeah, brand new. Uh-huh. All right, so this came out February 2021. It's uh, by IDW, Star Trek Year 5, number 20. It does have an all-new staff. So the writer is Brandon Easton, artist by Sylvia Califano, colorist DC Alonzo, letterer Neil Yutaki, editor Chase Moroz, and the showrunners are still Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Um, again, there's no real title, but, uh, the second cover does have a, a title on it. So maybe it's called Raptors wings, uh, the Raptors wings or, or not, who knows. But anyways, the main cover is by Steven Thompson and it shows, uh, what looks like a Romulan or Vulcan. We don't know which one, uh, standing there. And then above him, we see a Raptor, uh, a bird of some sort, like with his wings enfolding over the man. So it uh, really makes me think uh, this is a um, Romulan, right, with the wings and everything. And then the other cover, the incentive cover, is by J.J. Lindell. And again, with the uh, 
Star Trek gold key font with the uh, Star Trek Year 5. And it says, Spock travels in time to Vulcan at war. And then we see like a picture of Spock. And then we see some like uh, the Itic sign and the uh, little sil- silhouette of the Enterprise and things like that. It's just uh, kind of a, a weird... Oh, wait. And then there's also the, the Raptor from uh, the back of the Romulan ship in uh, balance of terror. So it, from the belly, there too. yeah. The belly. I didn't even thing. I didn't even notice the raptor when I was reading it the first time. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of a cool cover. Now, now it is kind of a cool cover. Now it's kind of and, and and wasn't it Spock? Wasn't that Spock in uh, on the first cover? Nah, that's not Spock. Is it Spock? Well, I thought it was Spock, but wow. okay, whatever. It could be Spock. Well, they all have the same haircut. They all look the same. <laughs> All right, so yeah, it could be Spock, but he's not wearing his normal clothes. He's wearing no. uh, ceremonial robes and things like that. Right. Hmm. Spock, you say. All right, so let me get into the story then. So, again, this takes place after 19, so they just finished up with the biohazard and all that stuff. And instead of going back to home, back to Earth like they're supposed to be doing, uh, they instead decide to take a pit stop to Vulcan. And the reason why is because Bright Eyes states that he's getting some uneasy vibrations from the planet. Uh, once they're in orbit, Ahura does some communications magic, and they can now track the frequency that Bright Eyes has been able to see all along. Uh, and again, this is some undetectable sound up until now from anybody. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, They track uh, the signal down to the planet to a tower that's just on the outskirts of the Vulcan capital city. A landing party beams down with bright eyes in tow. They say that the tower is sending tachyons back through time. And as they're speculating what it is, uh, bright eyes is saying that the tower should not be there. But Spock says that he remembers it always being there, even back when he was a little boy. Bright Eyes then does something. Again, it's not clear what exactly he does, but he's right next to the tower. He's doing something. Spock says, be careful. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. And then there's like an explosion with this beam of light that kind of disorientates everybody. And then as the light dissipates and their spots leave from their eyes, they realize Spock is gone. He's just disintegrated into nothingness. And then the, basically the story splits off into two, two different stories. So I'm going to synopsize each one separately instead of jumping back and forth. So story one, a.k.a. the side story. Uh, this shows Kirk and company beaming back to the Enterprise, and they're trying to figure out what happened to Spock. Was he killed, or was he just beamed somewhere else nearby? Bright Eyes then explains how Tholians see time differently. And that's why they're able to see shifts in the space-time continuum. Uh, then they pretty much agree that uh, they think that Spock might somewhere somehow be lost in time. So while they're talking, they are then attacked by what seems to be Romulan-slash-Vulcan hybrid ships. whole fleet of them. Scotty tells Kirk that since the Enterprise, due to Bright Eyes being aboard, uh, was somehow immune to a timeline shift and that they're the only ones who think that seeing a Romulan slash Vulcan hybrid ship is at all odd. So here in the now, that's normal. 
and uh, the ships just start attacking the Enterprise. So they are left speculating on this and where Spock's possible temporal location is while they turn tail and run away from the fleet. Meanwhile, story two, Spock wakes in a Vulcan desert. He finds nearby two Vulcan men fighting with swords, and he notes that they are using an ancient Vulcan language. One of the Vulcans kills the other one, and then he races towards Spock. He thrusts at Spock's head with the sword, but Spock is able to catch the blade between his two palms, just barely an inch from his face. Before this surprised Vulcan can attack again, he is abruptly killed by a thrown knife. Spock's saviors turn out to be Surik himself, along with a whole army of people, uh, and they just capture Spock and throw him into a prisoner truck along with several other rebels. While in the car, Spock speaks to several of the other captives, mainly a woman named Zat. Here he learns that Surak is overthrowing the Vulcan population with an armed rebellion in order to, to force logic over emotion on everyone on the planet. Spock is surprised at this, since it's never mentioned in the history books that Surik's uprising was a violent one. The other captives uh, had friends on the outside who attacked the caravan and released the prisoners from their truck. Spock chooses to go with them instead of staying with Surik's army. At the camp of the rebels, he learns more about Surik's rise to power and how they even kidnap children to indoctrinate them early and rid themselves from those pesky emotions. Uh, he is able to change his clothes so that he fits in a little bit better, and he actually joins them on an expedition to steal what's called the Stone of Gaul. Spock knows from the future, he knows that this is a powerful tool, and he thinks to himself that uh, this could greatly change the course of history if used incorrectly. They make their way to a city, and then they make their way into a vault which contains the Stone of Gaul. Uh, just as they're about to pick it up, Surik appears and states that this was all a trap. Spock talks to Surik, who defends that the conquest of Vulcan is for its own benefit. Surik even points out to Zat about how her emotions for losing her loved ones is not helping her at all fight against him. Spock states, is not the desire for conquest an emotional reaction? So to this, Surik is only able to just stare at Spock for a good long time, perhaps seeing the logic in his statement. Zat then threatens to use the Stone of Gaul on Sarek. Both Spock and Surik try to talk her out of it, but she does it anyways and immediately dies due to the stone only attacking her with the same negative emotions that she was radiating towards Surik. So after the dust settles, literally, uh, Surik makes a speech to Spock to try to get him to join his side, to which Spock answers by giving him the Vulcan nerve pinch. Spock looks down at Surik's body and speculates how he might have just changed the course of history forever. To be continued. Da -da -da! Yes, if he did stop the um, 
ridding of emotion or at least subjugation of emotion in the Vulcan people, that could very much change the future. Right. We could explain all those uh, Vulcan Romulan hybrid ships. Mm -hmm. Opening fire at a unfamiliar ship configuration. Right. Right. So if the Vulcans never contacted Cochrane, would the Federation possibly ever have happened? Probably not. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you, is that, uh, I mean, if Vulcan was out of the picture, do you think the Federation... I mean, they're kind of implying that the Federation might not exist because Vulcan wasn't the uh, you know, the emotionalist influence that they were on the universe. But do you think that's a, that would be the case? Well, I think... Well, okay, so... If there was never the split, so the the Romulan Empire was never formed, right? And the Vulcans are still emotionless. Who knows what their exploration program might have been like? Um, so if they never came to the so our solar system and saw Cochrane do his uh, run, um, we might have had warp drive, but did we do anything with it? Were we able to do anything with it? Were we able to? you know, join the greater community of uh, spacefaring civilizations. Uh, probably, probably not. Well, you think eventually we would have bumped into somebody? Uh, if we were able to come back from World War Three, Sure. Well, I mean... But as we know from First Contact... Not First Contact. Uh, yeah, First Contact. No, it was First Contact. As you know from First Contact, I mean, quite frankly, how Cochrane was able to launch that ship... Uh, given the resources they apparently had, it seems really unlikely. And then, and then, okay, so he goes out for a little a little jot around the solar system and comes back. Okay, what happens next? I mean, are you gonna be able to get enough fuel to uh, to do it again? Yeah, to do it again. Uh, to go to Alpha Centauri and back. Well. Yeah. I mean, we don't yeah. know. We don't know how much the Vulcans helped us, but at the very right. least, we know that knowing they said because they knew there were uh, more beings in the galaxy, and it's a, it's a it's a bigger bigger bigger. It's not they're not alone anymore. Uh, right. I th- I think that was supposedly a galvanizing thing. Uh, oh, so that's what changed the humans into stop being so petty. <sighs> yeah, more or less. But that that first contact was a pivotal moment for the humans, and of course, without the humans, you couldn't have the Federation. You might have had something else without, who knows. Uh, But the humans supposedly instigated a lot of the Federation. Right. Well, I mean, definitely from the last episode of Enterprise, uh, Archer was pretty instrumental. There you go. Exactly. There you go. Hmm. So do you think these are more Vulcans or more Romulans? I, I, I guess more Romulans since they attack. Oh, um, I think they're... Well, there are no Romulans. I right. Mean, but I mean, do you think they... So do you think that it's implied that... They were getting attacked by Surik Vulcans. Never, never, uh, Surik never... His, his religion thing never caught on? Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. 
That's and so I, they never split. So Vulcans continue to have emotions, and uh, they were kind of warlike, everything they said. Um, you know, killing each other. Uh, you know. Right. If, so, if, that, if that transferred into the future, um, yeah, they would be maybe, maybe kind of like Romulans um, from a standpoint of being aggressive at things. Right. So you were saying that uh, this seemed familiar to you? Do you want... Were you just talking or were you uh, really thinking that it, it was... Something you'd seen before. Well, oh, okay, so yes, so uh, a couple things. So they, the whole idea of having time travel and then having something changed, I mean, that completely was the whole idea with uh, sitting on the ed- edge of forever, right? Right. So they went back to Earth. They were involved at a pit- pivotal moment where the Earth could have went one way or could have went a, a different way. And in that story, of course, Things turned out fine because Kirk was stopped from saving Edith Keeler. So in this case, they're going back to Vulcan, and uh, Spock's alone, um, and he <laughs> he sees the most pivotal pivotal person in all of Vulcan history, Serac. So, and now he's doing things that could ultimately undo. Um, you know, undo the future. Right. And, and again, just like, um, you know, that same thing about how they were shielded from the timeline shifts uh, on the planet, uh, you know, the planet of the, the Guardian of Forever. Right. Uh, same thing happened, but it happened on the Enterprise. So the Enterprise was guarded from changes in the timeline. Right. Uh, and, I, and, was that, and that was because they were... They adjusted their communications to Bright Eyes' frequencies. Is that what killed the Enterprise? I, I don't remember what. Yeah, I was really BS. They came up with what, what it was, what it was <laughs> that, that uh, saved the Enterprise. Yeah, they 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 explained it, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. I mean, this whole thing, this whole thing where Bright Eyes, you know, sees everything differently from from all the other races, is uh, is interesting. But okay, back to things I've seen before. So that was one thing. And the other thing is, it was kind of interesting to see uh, the Stone of Gaul. Um, Where have we seen that before? Ah. Well, um, I, I knew I saw it before in a TNG episode. I didn't remember exactly which one. I remember a Vulcan found the Stone of Gaul, although I, don't, I didn't remember the name of it, but she tried to use it as a weapon. I mean, I remember, I remember her dialogue where she's saying, you think phasers and disruptors and shields are the basis of power. Forget about it. It's all this thing. The Stone of Gaul is the real weapon. Mm-hmm. And she ended up killing herself. Same way Zat does? Exactly. So... Okay, so so I don't remember all the details, and I didn't remember the exact uh, title of that episode of TNG. So I went and did some research, as 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 I am off to do. So this was uh, Gambit, the Gambit Part Two. 
Okay. So that's the one where Picard and I think I think Riker too, they were able to fall into a ring of um, pirates. Well, pirates, criminal types, whatever. And they were on this big thing where they were looking for, you know, it, it was like an Indiana Jones kind of thing or whatever. And right. of course, uh, anyway. So at the end of the episode, a Vulcan who was uh, named Tapaal two A's in the middle, um, was masquerading as a criminal Romulan, but she was really a Vulcan. And she was trying to get her hands on the Stone of Gaul, and at the end they finally did. And she, she didn't understand properly the nature of this thing. So here's exactly what the website said. Uh, the Stone of Gaul was an ancient weapon conceived on Vulcan during the turbulent times before... The time of awakening, so it was. It would always went back to this time period in Vulcan past. It functions as a psionic resonator, which focused and amplified telepathic energy, specifically any violent thoughts and emotions. Many hold and then turn them back upon the person experiencing them. Mm. However, if the target was able to empty their mind of violent thoughts. The resonator had nothing to amplify, amplify, and so was unable to operate. Since the teachings of Sirach were aimed at precisely this kind of emotional control, the psionic resonator subsequently became useless against his followers during the time of the awakening. Okay, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't remember any or get, the, the TNG episode apparently went over all this. Right. I didn't well, remember the details. Now that you mention it, I do remember that episode. And if right. I'm not mistaken, that Romulan was played by either Robin Curtis or was played by um, the woman that plays Worf's baby mama. <laughs> or what was her name? I forgot. Uh, yeah, I, I forgot her name, too. But I think you're right. I mean, I, yeah. I had seen her in something else. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think it's that. I think she, I think it's her, not Robin Curtis. But yeah, yeah it, w- it was somebody that had played other major characters. Mm-hmm. And Agreed. Was, Agreed. Yeah. So, right. so the thing is, Zat fell into the same trap apparently that you know that future Romulan to Paal did, where yeah. she thinks it's a weapon that she can use against somebody but the whole thing's a trap uh that in this case sarek is laying out in front of her so she's got it and he's basically says just the things that he thinks will piss her off enough for her to try to use it right but when you use this you end up i mean depending upon what your target of the weapon does it ends up taking your own negative emotions and backfiring on you. Right. So I think that's how Picard was able to be attacked by that other character in Next Gen and and basically have it kill her. Okay. Um, and now this person does the exact same thing, but it's all, it's all part of a trap by Sarek. So well played, Sarek. Except that you're showing Spock that you're willing to do anything, uh, including kill a whole bunch of people, to force your non-emotional 
vision for the future. Right. All right, so before we go into that part, yeah. I mean, did, did you like the Stone of Gaul being in it and what they did with it or not? Oh, yeah, I liked it. I liked it. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think it's fine. I mean, it's kind of cool, actually. Yeah, now that you brought up that backstory, which I I did not put two and two together, so I'm glad you, well, you did that. So now I'm even liking it more because it's very rarely do they ever try to tie in these Taz comics with uh, TNG, so that's yeah. really cool. Well, it's really cool because this could not fit better. Right, no, it's perfect. Yeah, so the TNG episode came up with this thing, and it was totally a callback to this period of Vulcan history. And the fact that the writer uh, remembers that from the TNG episode and is making use of it very well, I think, is pretty cool. Okay, so now let's go to the other thing you brought up, which is Spock seeing, uh, basically his Jesus uh, in, mm-hmm. a, in a different light. Do you mm-hmm. like that part or no? Well, it's almost like what they did with Gary <laughs> Seven. It's like, <laughs> here's this revered character uh, from the past. Yes, the Jesus of Vulcan, basically. And we, of course, all know that history paints the winners in a very positive way. But to actually force this kind of huge change... In a whole population, eh, maybe the only way to really make that happen is to use more force than right. probably some people would like. Now, yeah. does that make you a demagogue that is, in the end, the ends justify the means? Um, or are you actually a villain and the ends don't? Uh, the ends... Anyway, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, Spock is, by the end of this issue, is taking a very moral stance on this. But in the long run, is it the right one? Right. Yeah, so I, I'll be honest. You know, I've read a lot of those other books. You know, there's that trilogy of books where mm-hmm. um, uh, it depicts the Romulans leaving Vulcan yep. and, you know, it. it's not implied that it was a... It's implied that there, you know, there was a change in philosophy, but it's not implied that it was a violent one. It yes, was, you know, I agree. it was. Everybody has become enlightened and now want to follow this, and now they're the minority, mm-hmm. and you know they're they're leaving. You know, kind of like the pilgrims leaving uh, Europe to go to the Americas. You know, that that kind of thing. That's that's the way those books depicted it. Right. Um, and then you know they have lots of trouble and stuff on the way. Which I really like those books, but again, it never really depicted Surak as being a, a dictator that was forcing this. On oh no, people. not at all. But this is revisionist this, history. Yeah, I didn't not like it. <laughs> I, <did> not <laughs> like it. I was like, well, they're doing something different, and you know, if you take the, you know, because there anything you read that's expanded universe is never can never be considered hundred percent canonical, right? So mm. they're always changing it. Well, shoot, they even change stuff that they show on screen. But anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. so again, I was kind of like, you have two minds of it. One, uh, I wanted it to fit what what other stuff had come out before. But then another part was just like, eh, it does kind of make sense that it not everybody would be up for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, if, and, you know, kidnapping the kids and forcing this religion on them. Right. It's horrible. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm like Spock. I, I would never condone it, but. I mean, it kind of makes sense that that's how you would have to do it or how you 
the easiest way to do it. Yes. Is to force it on somebody like that. Yep. So. And and will in the end will Spock's involvement um, temper how Sarek achieves his goals going forward? Is that how this is going to end? Right. So Spock is able in the end to be successful in making Sarek less of a extremist um, and maybe achieving it more through coercion rather than killing people. Maybe, maybe that's how this ends, but they're sure not making it look that way because um, the timeline's already changed. Right. Right. Or maybe Spock's going to do all the stuff that the history books say Sarek does and then give Sarek credit for it and then go back home and everything will be normal. Right, right, right. Yep. So here's here's what I think is what? happening. Um, one, I think that Spock's already in an altered universe or an altered timeline because they did say that this tower has been sending something back, right? So I really think that the tower is, is a trap by Gary Seven. I agree. That, that uh, has already started changing the past you know, changing Sarek from maybe mm-hmm. being more pacifist to more aggressive. And then now Spock's back there and he's changing it even more. But ultimately Gary's goal is like we said earlier, that if Vulcan never became the enlightened species that then shared warp drive with the greater universe, then earth would never be part of the Federation. And then mm-hmm. therefore that would also accomplish their, their goal of, yeah, taking over and then maybe that even ties in with why the Tholians are the only ones that are going to still be alive is because they somehow can see all these changes and they can adjust course before they're wiped out of uh, out of existence right okay so for Proxima Centauri they're directly trying to wipe out the population okay so, so that's one. So that's one founding member of the Federation. Um, right. In the case of the Vulcans, they're actually going back in time. And and are they? Is Gary? In, maybe we don't see Gary because Gary was off in the in the Vulcan past, messing with Sarek and to go this more violent way. Right. As, maybe. So really, maybe Spock's presence is. Spock was not meant to go into the past uh, by by the Aegis and, and Gary. Right. And his presence will be able to hopefully pull Sarek back into his original pacifist uh, way of uh, of enlightening the Vulcans. Right. Is that part of it? Yeah. Or, like I said, I really think that Spock's going to be the one that does everything and then Zurich's going to be the one that just kind of gets accredited for it all. Well, okay, it's already it's already Sarek's idea to shed emotion. Emotions, right, so, right, right. Just how he does it. Exactly, right. The more pacifist way of doing it. Right. Right. Yeah, so I don't know. But, but uh, you know, when I read it the first time, I was just kind of like in shock about what was going on. And then, then when I was reading it through the second time, I was like, oh, okay, this is... This is all of Gary's plan. <laughs> yeah. To keep both the Earth and the Vulcan out of the Federation. Right. To keep them from stopping whatever they're going to do in the future. Well, yeah. So Centaurans. Um, yes, exactly. 
and then, and and I'm wondering if that's as far as they go, or do they do, or or do does Gary and the E just try to do something to mess with uh, with Tellarites and the uh, the antenna people, and, and Dorians, and Dorians, and Dorians, right? Or, well, or, did, or do they have to bother? Issues, so they got they got to wrap it up pretty quick. Exactly. So they probably don't have to mess with those other two races as long as they take out uh, the humans and and the Vulcans, because that's really the linchpin. Probably two races, right? Keep them from meeting and uh, keep them separate. Okay, but we'll find out. Yay! Yeah, hope so. Fairly quickly. So, um, did you like how they were depicting the Tholian viewpoint on things? There's a there's a few shots where it was showing how mm-hmm. the Tholian sees the the bright eyes. Right, and it was just like the normal picture, and then like a a, a white outline white outline that yeah. was just kind of off center yep. from the actual picture. Yep, and those yeah, I, and you notice that was people, people had that, but inanimate inanimate objects, not really. Oh, good point. I didn't catch that. Well, it, 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 there's a there's a broad panel. No, that, I definitely see it now. But I right. didn't notice it when I read it the first time. Yeah. Now, the, now there is something else there that looks like almost like a Charlie Brown shirt, <laughs> a kind of jagged thing that <laughs> that goes across the background, it, which in which includes like the turbo lift elevator. Yeah, I think that's just showing you know? the, the 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 vibrations. Uh, okay. Okay. Fine. But but my point is they have something for inanimate objects too. But the main white outline thing you mentioned, those are beings, people, right? that, that uh, that's used for. And I really looked into it because I was like, well, maybe he's seeing another timeline where mm. people are different, right? Mm. But it's the exact same picture, just right. slightly off-center off and white. Right. So is that supposed to show vibrations? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly. The, the vibrations of all living things? The Force, perhaps. That's that's their metachlorians floating above. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It it is. It, at first, I didn't know what the hell they were they were doing. <laughs> I, I still don't know what they were doing. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mm. Well, how do you like? Uh, Old Vulcan looking like a scene from uh, Mad Max. Yeah, definitely like Mad Max. I was going to say the same thing. Those cars <laughs> with the, like the spikes coming out exactly. of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so let's make a dune buggy, but uh, put spikes on it. Exactly. <laughs> I guess that's what rammed the uh, the truck or whatever. No, they shoot the truck to knock it over. So, yeah, I don't know why they need spikes. I don't know. It just makes it more, more makes it look more violent. I don't know. And and do those not have wheels, but some kind of anti grav things? Yeah, the truck looks like it has like tire treads. Okay, but, uh, but the little the little doom buggy things look like it has anti grav. Okay. And I'll be honest, when I saw the truck at first, I was like, "That's not that's not," you know, that looks like a traditional truck with mm-hmm. the tires and stuff. And then I was like, they shouldn't have that kind of technology back in ancient Vulcan. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. They're about to ship off a good chunk of their population to another planet. So I guess it makes sense why they would have trucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
They got spaceships, I was, apparently. I was thinking it was like Conan the Barbarian type times, and then with a truck. And I was right. like, well, that's really out of place. <laughs> and then I was like, well, I guess it, it makes sense because they're about to pack them all up and send them to Rom- Romulan and Re- Remus. Right. Okay, so... Okay, hold on a second. I don't remember that, because that, those, uh, what, Vulcan Forge, or, well, whatever they, those novels. Those three of them. Which I read a long time ago, a long, long, long time ago, so there's lots of details I don't remember, but, okay. So, was there a war, um, and were both races went to a different planet? Or the war happened on Vulcan, but yeah, I the war, thought the war happened on Vulcan, and then they were they were sent away. Who's they? The Romulans. The emotion. The people that clung to their emotions. Yeah, with their emotions, right? Okay, but I th- I th- but then there was like a Serac. twist. Yeah, I, there was a twist. I can't remember what it was. I thought was Serac the... was was on a spaceship too. I don't think so. Okay. Okay, so I don't remember. Well, I know. That, right. I think. I think the twist was is that the people you think are going to be the Romulans end up being the Remans. Oh, I think that. Was oh, the, I think that oh? was the big twist on in mm-hmm. the third book. Okay, because they start mutating and stuff, and on their planet, and then you find out, oh, this is not Romulus, this is Remus. <laughs> okay. okay, other ones are the Romulans, if I remember right. But yeah, there is some sort of twist in it. Right. It's been a long time since I read those. Two. Yeah, me too. Anywho, so anything else on this one? I uh, really don't. You? Oh yeah, one last thing. How do you like? How do you like the repeated use of the Batman move? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, it hasn't been that long since Kirk did that in the exactly. same series. Exactly. Or so they just they just couldn't stop themselves. Right. So Spock claps his hands on an incoming knife blade and stops it cold dead. Right. Yep. And as we mentioned back then, uh, my first exposure to that move was in a Batman comic. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, as Ken pointed out back then, that it's it's been used in like I think there's a Bruce Lee movie where he does it, and there's also other like fictional characters that have done it in the past. Probably, but I wasn't aware of the Batman move. Uh, until you you told me about it, but it's like right. well, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, as a little kid reading that, I was just like, "Oh my goodness, that's amazing!" It it's makes total Batman sense. Batman, the coolest ever. <laughs> but yeah, now now Spock's like, "I'm just as cool as Batman." <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool. I think the I think the Batleth one. When they did it there, it looked cooler. That that shot looked cooler because that that batleth was just so huge. Remember? Yeah, those, those batleths for whatever reason were just gigantic, and it, right. Kirk's able to just stop it like that. Yeah, it looks cool, but makes no sense. After I mean, I th- we said this before. Right. Kirk was so beat up, and he is a human compared to a Klingon, and the Klingon is fresh, and and he and he's going he was going down on him right. So, right. so you've got momentum and gravity on the side of the Klingon. Now, at least this, Spock is fresh. He's a Vulcan. Of course, the guy trying to kill him is a Vulcan, too. But at least he's fresh. He's, he's, he's standing toe-to-toe. Um, doesn't have gravity quite as 
much of a uh, thing to overcome. Right. Uh, although I got to say, that guy looks really nasty. <laughs> the guy swinging it at, at Spock. Yeah. So he looks really like he's got emotional, you know, he's got the adrenaline pumping. Right. And then Spock's just there completely impassive. Oh, yeah. Clap. There you go. Sorry. You didn't kill me, did you? <laughs> yeah, now that one was also a little odd. The the because it shows Spock like looking at him, uh-huh. and then the next panel it looks like it's Spock again because it's kind of the back of this person's head who's wearing a blue shirt, right? And it looks like this bad this bad guy just slices that guy's head off. Yes. And then the third panel it shows that oh no that was the other guy this guy was fighting Spock still further back. I completely and, agree. It's up. very confusing because it yeah, looks that, like the guy that has his uh, his neck sliced through. Yeah, the swish. Yeah, yeah it was, looks like I he's got a blue shirt. <laughs> right. It, 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 it's mostly black because it's kind of like shadows kind of thing, supposedly. But it looks like he's got a blue shirt. And you're right, he's in almost the exact same position as Spock is in the previous one. So for a minute, they make it seem like it's Spock that got decapitated or whatever. Right. So the messing, I mean, it only, I think, it only I think lasts they're purposely messing. But it was it was a shock there for a second. Yeah, I think they purposely were messing with us. Probably. Probably. So, anyways, I'm looking forward to this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the last one, I that cliffhanger, it was just like, eh, hey, I'll read it, but I'm not like, by you know, I'm not just waiting to read that mm-hmm. one. But this one, I'm like, ah, I gotta read this one right away. Yeah. The but I've one... helped. Uh, Held off until we talked about it so that I didn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't like seed in what I actually know happened since 21 into my talk off. So, okay, cool. But I could have. Oh, I could have. Oh, cool. So we're doing 21 and 22 next week. Sound sounds good to you, kid. That's getting great. closer. And we got to find out what's going on, man. We yeah, got to no. find out. All right. Anything else? No. No, that's it. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, On the review. See you next time. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.